You're listening to Group, a podcast about mental illness and mental health. This is the show for the Warriors. I feel like I'm going to explode. I, I genuinely feel like I could cry over everything and oh I'm going to explode. God. The depressives. I was at a bar last week and I was talking to a girl and I told her that I have clinical depression. And the folks feeling a little out of sorts. See, my inner monologue is just the F word on repeat. Our goal is to tell your stories, to share advice, and to give you an audio hug through your earbuds. I'm Rebecca Lee Douglas, your resident anxious person, and I'm here today with group friendipist, licensed clinical social worker, Catherine Drury. Hello, everyone. How are you doing, Catherine? I'm doing well. have a lot on my plate right now, but all good things. We're working on a series on grief. We started with our April 1st episode with comedian Carrie Ad Lloyd from GriefCast, and now we're going to be doing a two-part episode where we'll be sharing some very different experiences with death and bereavement. Catherine, are you are you ready for these? I am. Um, I know it's a it's a heavier topic, but it's an important one and one that probably a lot of our listeners have have dealt with and gone through. So we're going to be sharing a bunch of different voices and stories, and we'll break down the science of grief with a leading expert in the field. Catherine, you know um, that my mom passed away a, a couple years ago from pancreatic cancer. I do, yeah. My parents had been married for 30 years when my mom died. Um, they had three kids together, my two brothers and me. And um, there's not a great map for how to interact with grieving people. And mm. sometimes sometimes that leads to some really strange experiences. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to uh, share, to start the uh, episode with one of those, because it's, it's a little bit lighter. It's sort of funny in a dark way. Um, <laughs> since we're going to be digging into stuff that is, is a little bit heavier, I want to start with something sort of light. Hello. Dad, Josh, can you guys both hear me? Yeah. Hello. Okay, cool. Where are you, Dad? Fort Lauderdale. Oh, what are you doing in Florida? I have to go to a mediation. For work? Uh, tomorrow morning. Yeah, for work. No, just for fun. Just for fun. <laughs> uh, so I'm working on an episode for group about grief, and I wanted to start the show with something that's like a little bit lighter and funnier. So I was wondering if you and Josh could help me tell the story of that time after mom died when we went to the cemetery and those two young guys approached yeah, us. Yeah, I remember that, that was, story. I remember them approaching us. I remember that remember. exactly. So do you want me to provide background then? Yeah. So we were, obviously your mother passed away and uh, we had picked a plot out at a local cemetery where we lived. Uh, as a place for your mom's final resting place. Uh, part of it is you have to get a headstone. This gal who was uh, worked for the headstone company wanted to meet us at the cemetery. So we picked a time midday. We uh, walked up to the cemetery. Yeah, I would, I would describe it as very an emotional moment between the three of <laughs> us, well, the four of us, including the yeah. lady that is in the family business of creating headstones. Um, and yeah, we were taking a look at plots and all of a sudden we see approaching us, these two young men in black slacks tucked in white shirts and your typical name tag flapped on the <laughs> chest. 
Yeah, elder so-and-so and, and, you know, elder what's-his-face. And these two very well-dressed and manicured (laughs) uh, youth just kind of say, oh, hi, how are you doing today? Like, they were walking down a street with houses, too, like houses lined the street, and then they turned because they saw us in the graveyard, like, and why, why... Why Why would you even think so, to do that? To approach people in the graveyard? Yeah. Obviously, they're not there, like, having a party or something. <laughs> so they asked us, how are you doing? You know, kind of greeting us. And we said, well, actually, not particularly good because we're here because my wife and they, their mother died. And, uh, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And then he launched into uh, talking about how he had lost his dog. And how how difficult that was. <laughs> yeah, like this guy is a freaking idiot. <laughs> oh, I, I I know that loss. I I've lost my dog before. Like, sure, that's sad, but you know that's just not the right thing to say. Dad, you were actually very measured in how you dealt with them. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was just thinking that, you know, if Andy, our brother, was there, oh, man. Andy's a skeptic and anti-religion in general. So, yeah, I think if um, Andy had been approached by the two Mormon guys in the graveyard who were trying to, you know, like, tell him about Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I, I, I don't I don't think it would have been uh, I don't think it would have been good for those guys. I, I don't think it would have uh, no. very well. no. I think they're taught taught to relate to people. Oh, use your personal experiences to somehow relate to the person you don't know. So you're right. I was kind of, you know, it's not a good time at this particular point to talk to us. Hey, good luck. Bye. It's just they kind of hit a really bad time. So, and it's difficult for them to to relate to us at this particular point. We're kind of going through one of the worst times of our lives. and, And here this guy's trying to be smiley and happy. I think we wanted to just kick him, kick him both. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so um, our listeners are pretty empathetic people, and I can't really imagine any of them doing anything like this. That's a pretty clear faux pas. Yeah. So, but you know, it's hard because as I, you know, as we were talking about at the top of the show, we don't really have a great map of how to interact with grieving people in this day and age. Definitely. Um, and people can have the best of intentions and really be trying to be supportive yeah. and encouraging when they make some of these mistakes. And we also don't really have a great map of how to grieve right mm-hmm. now. You know, we don't really talk about death too often it it seems you know it's a it's a pretty taboo subject we don't really think about it until we absolutely have to so when it happens it's sort of shocking and you don't necessarily know what to do i wanted to take this episode as an opportunity to to really understand grief a bit better so that you know folks can know what to expect and how to deal with it a bit better So I went to speak with George Bonanno, who is a professor of psychology at Teachers College, Columbia University. Some of these are tomb figures that have been in in tombs in ancient China. Some are are a couple thousand years old. There's a skeleton over there. Professor Bonanno is one of the leading experts in the way people grieve. 
And you can tell by looking around his office that he spends a lot of time thinking about death. My wife said, please, no more skeletons. So the, the, the excess is, it makes its way into my office, yeah. A lot of his work has debunked the idea that there's this specific process that everybody needs to go through when they grieve. Catherine, I'm sure you've heard of Elizabeth Cooler Ross's model for mourning. Of course. Um, she's the, the person who originally, who came up with the five stages of grief that people often reference. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Um, and her model laid out that in order to grieve properly, you have to move through each stage sequentially. More recently, we've discovered that that's not really the case. Yeah, so I think it's interesting. Professor Bonanno was telling me that Kubler-Ross's model was based on her work with dying individuals mm -hmm. um, and not with grieving individuals, but it's been adapted to apply to folks who are grieving. And so George and his team ha has done a lot of research over the past about 30 years with different types of people who are grieving and has found that, you know, as you were saying, they don't go through these stages. People hurt immensely and suffer, but they actually found that most people who lose someone recover quite quickly. They instead found that there are these three general patterns for grief, which I asked him to break down for us. The first pattern is what he calls the resilient trajectory. The majority of bereaved people, usually 60-70% at least, pretty much um, continue to function normally, even relatively soon after the loss. That's the resilient trajectory, we call that. That doesn't mean that they're, that they're not suffering. It doesn't mean they're not feeling intensely sad at times, but they can continue to function. They can continue to work, concentrate. They can be available for other people that need them. They can feel connected to other people. Maybe they have a few weeks where they're really trying to adjust to the loss, but beyond that, they're able to function. They may still feel sad off and on for a year. They may feel like they're still adapting to the loss, but they're functioning, and that's what we call resilience. So uh, are certain types of grieving individuals more likely to experience resilience? Well, this is a really great question. We're always trying to answer this question. We found some of the factors that tell us who's more likely to be resilient. We find some personality traits, optimism, challenge appraisal is another one where people tend to look at the things that happen to them in terms of challenges rather than threats. There are some people who just have a sense, I'll get through this, I'll get through anything, I'll get through this. And having social resources, having uh, things to rely on, that helps. Keeping stress down when people are, are having a lot of stress, that's going to make it more difficult. There are a number of other factors that, that come into play. Okay, so that's resilience. It, it's, it's strange because I, I felt like I was in so much pain after my mom passed away, but I, I think I actually fall into this category. Like, mm. I went back to work a week after she passed away. Right. I was able to, you know, talk to friends. That was really helpful. I, I, did... I was going to say you kind of knew to an extent what it was that you needed. Like, mm -hmm. you reached out to people, you set up supports, you took care of yourself. And yeah, so I, I think at the time I wouldn't have thought of myself as resilient, but mm -hmm. I think given this pattern, I, I think I, I was. The second trajectory involves um, a longer period of intense sadness. Then there's a, another trajectory we call the recovery trajectory that's smaller, uh, a smaller proportion of people, maybe 20, 25%. And this group of people struggles considerably more and they find it difficult to function for many months 
And then they gradually begin to get better over the course of the next year or two. So for this group of people, it's quite a struggle. They kind of hang in there and they might have a difficult time working and concentrating, but they'll do it and gradually it gets better and they can report that they're getting better. And then the final trajectory is what he refers to as chronic grief. The third group, which is really probably, I would say, 10% or less, it's hard to know exactly what the percentage is, but this group of people will really struggle for quite a while, several years or longer, and they really, this is the group that really tends to need help getting over the loss. Now, these three trajectories, these three patterns are not, this is not the end-all and be-all. This is sort of more or less the three basic patterns we see. George Bonanno actually wrote a book about his research on grief called The Other Side of Sadness. Um, and I'll link to that on, on the group website, grouppodcast.com. In the book, he talks about these three trajectories, but he also shares like the evolutionary purpose of grief, which which I found really fascinating. It's hard to see it as serving some sort of function. Yeah, yeah. So I I was asking I asked him to break down like what it does for us. And we know from an abundant kinds of researches that when we feel sad, we tend to turn our attention inward. We tend to um, kind of retreat from the world a little bit and focus inward and take stock. And we, in a sense, recalibrate. So when we lose someone close to us, someone important to us, it doesn't even, sometimes it doesn't have to be somebody we love. It's just somebody that's important to our sense of the world. And that we know that that person or even that thing is no longer with us. We then have to kind of rethink the world. We have to imagine a world without that person. And this is very tricky during bereavement because the people that we care about most or the people that are most important to us are often not with us. So we spend our days with those people in our heads, right? We're not necessarily in the room with us or they're not necessarily present, but we, we have relationship with them in their heads. You see something on the street that you want to tell your partner or your mother or your child. And um, that's a very common occurrence. When the person is, is dead, they're no longer with us, we still engage in those practices. We still engage in those habits to have a relationship with a person in our minds, but they're no longer there. And at some point, we really need to come to terms with the fact that they're no longer there, because otherwise it's quite painful. So sadness seems to allow us to do that. We turn in, we, we recalibrate, we take stock of this kind of change in the world around us. I, I want to play a story, and then Catherine, I thought the two of us could talk about it at the end. Sure. But I think it demonstrates the sort of um, process of, of recalibration that Professor Bonanno was discussing. And um, also, you know, just how remarkably humans can, can recover after a loss. And just a warning, this story is about stillbirth. If that's a topic that is particularly challenge, challenging for you, I would recommend uh, skipping forward about 20 minutes. Okay, so basically, I wanted to hear the story of Liev. Do you remember when you found out that you were pregnant? Oh, gosh. You know, what's so hard is that because I got pregnant with Noah 10 months after I lost Liev, in a lot of ways, I mix up things, I think, about my pregnancies. Mm -hmm. For me, the only way to really get through what felt like this endless darkness of, of losing Liev was to get pregnant again. It was the only thing I could think about. But I think it was July when I found out I was pregnant with Liev. I was confused by the pregnancy test because I had never taken one. <laughs> and I was 35. That's so crazy. But I read it wrong. And I was like, oh, I guess I'm not pregnant. 
and then two more days went by and I still hadn't gotten my period. So I took it again and it said the same thing, but then I looked at the instructions and I was like, Oh, I was pregnant (laughs) two days ago. (laughs) How did you, how did you feel when you read it correctly and you realized that you, that you were pregnant? Were you excited? I was so excited. Yeah. I was so super excited because we'd been um, trying but I think like um, that when I that when I finally did, it was like really shocking because I just never know. If, I never knew if I could. I never had a pregnancy scare, you know. I, I know in like the Jewish tradition, like quite often people won't have like a baby shower or do some of the traditional celebrations uh, when you're expecting a baby because it's not considered good luck. Yeah, in Judaism, it's sort of this taboo to. I mean, a lot of people will. Uh, not think about names and not decorate um, nurseries and not buy any baby stuff, not have any baby stuff in the house, not really plan at all um, for having a baby. And I remember my friends wanted to throw a shower for me and I really struggled with whether or not to do that. But then when your friends are wanting to have a party for you because you're having a baby, it's like a fun thing to do. So I think we did it in February. We just did a brunch at a friend's Mm -hmm. apartment. And I remember saying, and this wasn't like a premonition, it was just me saying like, well, God forbid anything terrible happens. Like I want, I want support. I want people to feel a part of this pregnancy with me, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I felt like, yeah, to have this group of women want to like go through this with me. I think I felt grateful for like support. When, when was, when was he due? When was his due date? Um, March, uh, March 25th. Okay, so February was like very, you know, he, he was nearly due in February. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, do you remember what happened? I'm sure you do, but um, what? So, what happened the day that you lost him? So, I remember um, over the weekend feeling less movement. He was due on March 25th, so this is probably March, you know, 10th, 11th. Mm-hmm. But I was by then, you know, like 37 and a half, almost 38 weeks. And I felt like uh, a little nervous, but I was talking to all my friends who'd been pregnant and they all said, well, you have a huge baby in your tummy and there's not a lot of room now to Mm -hmm. move for that baby. And so that's normal, you know? And so I just kept thinking I'll feel so much better when I go to my weekly appointment, which was on Tuesday for my 38 week checkup but I remember I worked late the night before Uh, I like took a big pregnant selfie I was excited I was trying to stay positive Mm -hmm. Um, and then I went to the appointment on um, March 13th Tuesday morning and that's when I found out that there was no heartbeat oh man and how did they how do you remember how they told you um, you know it was a nurse she was um, she had the the wand thing and she said oh you know something must not be working with this I'll pull in a different machine Uh you know she she wasn't hearing anything but she was I think that that's not where they want to go they want to keep you know and then she said she was going to go get the doctor so oh man gosh and it all just happened really quickly you know and it was the kind of thing I was alone Ari wasn't with me because it was just a it was just, just a checkup. checkup and yeah, and he, he was due in like a, a couple of weeks. Yeah. So why would right. yeah. in 11, 11 days? Yeah. Right. So it was just, um, and so they said, we're so sorry. And there's, 
there's no heartbeat. So, oh man. And I just, I just was like, part of me wasn't surprised because I hadn't hurt, I hadn't mm-hmm. felt him moving. But I also, there was something that felt sort of like, and I think maybe this is just pregnancy, but you just feel like it's so, it's so unbelievable. How are you going to suddenly be a mom and like have a baby, you know, like that, that change from like your life as just Mm -hmm. a person to then someone carrying a baby and having a baby. It's really hard to imagine. So for me, hearing that I wasn't going to have one was, God, I mean, it was so many things, but it also, it didn't like shock me. It's so hard to explain. And that's such a weird thing to feel, but I just felt like, oh, okay, well, I'm just going to go back to being me now, you know, Mm -hmm. um, but, but I didn't, I didn't anticipate all the things that were going to happen then, you know, they said, well, now, now you have to go deliver, you have to go deliver this baby, you know? So did you call Ari? So you called? Yeah, I called Ari and he thought I was calling to tell him that I was going into labor. Uh I didn't understand at first, you know, because I was crying. Um, so we took a cab to NYU to the hospital and the cab driver wouldn't even take wouldn't even take our money. I mean, he had no idea what was going on, but he just he just said, you know, it's fine. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I think we just cried all the way from the office on like 38th Street to the hospital. Um, oh. So then they just, you know, it was a lot of kind of waiting around. They did um, pitocin, which induces labor and or induces, you know, you mm-hmm. know, contractions, and they did twice the amount that they would do for a, a living baby, you know, yeah. but just for it to be faster. So I don't think about these specific things very often because they're so hard and sad and I don't, I don't know what to like do with yeah. that. I think it's too sad for most people to hear all of this, you know? And, um, and so I delivered him. Um, I said, I wanted a C-section and um, they said, no, because they said it's major surgery and we don't do major surgery for no reason. You know, you're healthy. This is what we're going to do. And when you, in your next pregnancy, which I thought was so crazy yeah. to think that anybody would ever, ever do this again. And I told them I'm never, ever getting pregnant again. So it doesn't matter, you know, but they said in your next pregnancy, it, you're just it's going like, to be good for you that you. I just want you to, <laughs> I just want you to cut yeah cut my stomach open take right. it out I want it to go as quickly as yep. possible I don't want to like deliver the, the the baby and like go through all and they and they just told you right. you didn't have a choice you had to you had to do that right because suddenly it, it went from feeling like oh this is my son I'm carrying this is such a I don't even know like how to describe this but it just it went from feeling like this was something that was a part of me yeah to something that I didn't understand or didn't know yeah I mean I remember I remember like having a similar feeling when um seeing my mother after she had died and seeing her yeah body um and thinking I didn't want to be in the room I didn't want to touch her I didn't want to be it was not my mom it was it was something I didn't recognize anymore My, my mom was gone so, right. yeah, yep. I can't imagine, yeah, if, if there's this human that you've had this connection with who's been living inside of you and then th- that's that's gone and there's this, like, replacement thing there instead that now you have to have this 
you have to d- deliver it like it were like it was your child or the child that you were expecting. Right. To, yeah. Um, right. Right. Oh gosh. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 just such a weird. I just wanted I wanted it like as far away from me, you mm-hmm. know, as possible. I don't know. I mean, I think it, I look back on it and I think it I think it did help me. Mm-hmm. I think that once I went through labor and delivered mm-hmm. him and, and held him, it felt like the respectful thing to do. I did feel in the end, like, how could I have done anything differently for my son, you know? So what was your grief like after after it happened in the following, like, weeks and months? I, I don't know. I mean, sometimes I look back and it's been, gosh, it's been six years. And I don't know how I got from that place to now I had to rely a lot on my friends and my family you know I was Mm -hmm. in New York and my family was all in you know in other parts of the country I mean they all came to be with me but but people don't stay and stay and stay you know and so um and I know you know that from losing your mom like it's it's uh it your grief like doesn't end but people people being like there um I mean that people people are there if you need them, but but in a different way, I think than than when it first happens. Yeah, the they're immediately when it happens, people rally around you, but then your grief like right. continues, and then people are sort of, other people are sort of over it, and you're you're not <laughs> right, right. you're not over it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it felt kind of like isolating, and even though I had my husband Ari who was going through it with me, we we were both mourning it differently um, because. I think he just couldn't wait to meet Liev and I felt like I knew him because mm-hmm. I carried him in my body, you know? And so we, we just, we were, we were mourning differently. I don't know. I felt really alone, I think for a long time. And then I just started to think like, well, the only, I couldn't, I just couldn't imagine that being my only story that, you know, in my thirties, I had a baby who died and that was it. That was it. That was just this sad thing. And people just, that was all they knew about me. And that was just, I just, I felt so sad. And I thought the only Mm -hmm. way that I could get out of that was to focus on having another baby. And I didn't want to replace Leah's. Um, But I really just wanted, I just didn't want that to be the end of my story. Mm -hmm. So um, as soon as I could, I I think maybe it was six months later, we started trying. And then I I went to... um, um, acupuncture and I was doing a lot of protein smoothies and then anything I read or anything, any, I mean, I, I think my, my acupuncturist had a lot of suggestions and I was just following all of them. Um, oh, like the and po- I got point, pregnant. point East yeah. when like, uh, you know, at the point of conception, <laughs> right, right. like eat lemons, those sorts of, yeah. <laughs> right. So, um, I got pregnant in January of 2013 and Liev had died in March of 2012. And so I got pregnant with Noah in um, January around my dad's yard site, which is, uh, you know, in Judaism, the, mm-hmm. um, the anniversary of someone's death. And so um, that felt symbolic and meaningful to me mm-hmm. um, to be pregnant again and to be remembering, you know, the baby I lost and also my dad. And that pregnancy was really scary for me. I'm sure. I just felt. Because you had so just gone and- through this nightmare. <laughs> right. Right. And I'm an anxious human to begin with. And so I just felt for all of the time that I was pregnant with Noah, I just felt really anxious and, um, and not excited. I think I was excited when I found out I was pregnant with her because it was all I wanted. 
but I, I hid it for as long as I could from everyone at work Mm -hmm. and I didn't do anything. I mean, we didn't even buy diapers. We didn't do anything. And I just kept thinking like, maybe I'm going to have this baby, you know, it was just really hard to be pregnant for all of that time. There was never a point where I yeah, because before you had gotten, you were at the home stretch. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, like it seems completely reasonable that you were anxious. That were you, were you seeing? Were you talking to a therapist or any anything at at that point? Was was um, were you doing anything well, that yeah. was to quell your anxiety? Well, I think that in the beginning we had talked to I think right after we lost Leah but I don't think when I was pregnant I was talking to a therapist but we had gone to a therapist um Ari and I had gone together and I think we didn't find it super helpful as a couple Mm. and then I tried to go on my own but I didn't find it helpful I don't know I had seen a therapist like a psychologist a a long time ago after my dad died um whom I just adored and he was so so wonderful and he had retired Mm -hmm. and so um I just don't, I don't think we, I connected with anybody after that. I don't know how on earth, thinking back, like without therapy, how I got through (laughs) that pregnancy. (laughs) But um, I think it was just so, it was so scary because, you know, they had done, we had agreed to an autopsy with Liab and they couldn't find anything wrong. They told us in like 50, 50% of cases, they don't find anything wrong. They just, it just happens. I just feel so lucky that Noah is perfect, you know, and she's four and a half years old. And I just, I, I just feel really, um, lucky. And I felt so unlucky, you know, it's so weird to feel both. So you're saying Noah is four and a half now. What does she know about Liev? What do you tell her about him? So we, for the first time, you know, he would have been um, six years old on um, March 14th. You know, the day I delivered him is what we count as uh, what would have been his birthday. And so we told her, you know, because she weirdly, she said to me out of nowhere, she said, was I the first baby? What? Um, She said that to me on the 14th of March. And I think she meant in the world, which is such a weird (laughs) um but like I took it as like a symbol that like I can I can share this information with her now you know and yeah I said you know you weren't the first baby that I ever had she's still so young so she didn't really ask that many questions she just she said what was his name so we told her and um we lit a candle for him and she, then she wanted to light a candle for all the people. She wanted to light a candle for David Bowie the other day and one for Tom. Oh, really? <laughs> um, so uh, I don't know. I mean, it's nice to not feel like we can't talk about it with her anymore. Yeah. So, so what is your grief like now? Do you still have days where you feel really sad? Um, well, I think like I kind of mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, like I don't really let myself go through all of this mm-hmm. really very often at all. Um, even on, on anniversary days on, you know, on the, on the day that he was, um, you know, uh, that I delivered him. Like March, March 14th. 14th yeah. um, that was a sad day, but I didn't, I don't think that I, I went through all of the emotions that I'm going through telling the story of it, you know, because, you know, I have a little girl to, to raise and a job to go to and all these things that you just, you focus on instead of these really sad things that live like, mm-hmm. you know, that are in your heart and on your mind, but like you, you can't to move forward. You have to sort of 
like live with that grief, but not let it be. I don't know. I actually remember this, you know, the psychologist I was seeing after I lost my dad, he said, you know, the idea is I said, I don't want to forget about him, you know? Um, And he said, you know, you're you're never going to forget about him. He's, he's in there, you know, like, but you want him to be like, if it's a house, you want him to be one room of that house. You don't want him to be the whole house. The, the entire house, yeah. Right, right. Is there anything else that you want to share, maybe for listeners who are going through something similar or have, have gone through something similar? Oh, gosh. Um, I remember, and I mean, I know you lost your mom. Like, people just say, like, oh, I could never. You know, people would be like, oh, I wouldn't even be able to get out of bed. And I could never go, you know. And I just think, like... I just, I cried every day for so long and then it was every few days, you know, <laughs> and then mm-hmm. it was, you know, every week or, or whatever. And then you get to a point where you are able to go through your day and go through your week and not cry. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how I did it and how I got to this place, but you just, um, you just put one foot in front of the other and you find yourself somehow sad, but just carrying it with you, but like in a way that you can still laugh and smile. Catherine, I thought what Carly said at the end was was really significant. People kept saying to her, like, I I don't know how you can do it. Like, I would never be able to do it. I wouldn't be able to get out of bed. You know, as Professor Bonanno was saying, the majority of the people who experience grief will surprise themselves with their resilience. Mm, Right. It's like I often will help people distinguish between grief and depression Um, and I'll say you know with grief and particularly with what Carly experienced you know it's incredibly sad it's incredibly isolating and it's a really dark period Um, but there is typically a sense of hope like there's a light at the end of the tunnel things are going to get better. I am going to get back to work. I'm going to survive this. Um, Whereas with depression, there's not that light at the end of the tunnel. And what typically happens with grief and what seems to have happened with Carly is that the grief never goes away. But, you know, I'll use the image of the house where originally grief takes up every room of the house. And then slowly over time, it just maybe takes up one floor of the house or room of the house or one closet mm-hmm. um, and you move through it in that way. So obviously I am a huge proponent of therapy uh, and I thought it was a no-brainer to, to for me to go to therapy after mm-hmm. after my mom died. Um, Carly mentioned that she doesn't didn't know how she, she got through her second pregnancy without therapy. Um, my dad had never been to, to therapy before after my mom passed away, and I, I really encouraged him to go, even though he wasn't super excited about it. Mm-hmm. So I asked Professor Bonanno if uh, it's recommended that, you know, everyone talks to a mental health professional at least once after a loved one dies. I think counseling, it's, it's really up to the individual. Um, and if I think people have been struggling with grief for a few months and they, they want some help, I, don't, I see no reason why they shouldn't seek the help. One of the tricky things is that often, at least, at least historically in the, in the last three or four decades, when people were not hurting too much, it was assumed to be a kind of a maladaptive response because they weren't doing the grief work and they were strongly encouraged to see a, a therapist. In that case, they didn't need a therapist. 
So, so for someone like, you know, you just mentioned who, like a, a listener who has recently lost someone, isn't interested in going to grief counseling, doesn't feel like they need it, but they're being encouraged by friends and family, you know, oh, well, you should really get help. You should really talk to someone. Is there any, are there any potential detriments to going to counseling if you don't feel like you need it? Well, I think so, yes. I mean, first of all, I don't know how it could possibly be helpful if, if a person didn't want it. The person could end up focusing on things that are quite normative. They could end up pathologizing what's a normal experience with them. So I would, I would encourage people not to seek treatment if they don't want treatment. I just I wanted to share with the listeners because this is this is so cool because we're sort of reconnecting through this. We went to high school together and I don't think we've we've seen each other or really like talked in like 12 years or something like that. So grief is bringing us together. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. And we're talking about something that happened to me in high school. So you are actually sort of mm-hmm. in the background without even knowing it. So our next story comes from Julie, who's a lawyer in Philadelphia. Uh, We hadn't really talked in years, so it was pretty cool when she messaged me to share her experience with grief. Her father died really suddenly during our junior year. And despite being in class together, you know, almost every day, I I had no idea that she was grieving. I don't think anybody really had any idea that she was grieving um, for reasons that will become obvious soon. So can you can you tell me about about your dad? What what was what was he like? What was his personality like? So. My dad was an alcoholic, so, you know, when he was fine, good, sober, everything was great. I was like a total daddy's girl. We had all, like, our inside jokes. You know, he was the parent that I related to the most. But at the time of his death, um, I wasn't even talking to him because he was in the throes of alcoholism so badly. He had just moved out of our family home two to three months before he died, I didn't talk to him at all because I just couldn't deal with it at that time. Mm -hmm. So what do you remember about the day that he died? I was going to go with my boyfriend to the art museum here in Philly. So I remember waking up and, you know, getting ready and my mom's watching the news and there was a fire taking place in the same general area where my dad was living at that time. And I said, you know, okay, great. Didn't care. You know, it's just nothing to suggest that it would be relevant to me or my family at all. But my mom's a bit of a warrior. So uh, right before I left, she, she wouldn't actually let me go. Actually, we found out when the military, I guess, found out first, the base where we live is right across the street from where my dad uh, was living at the time. So we got the knock at the door from the captain of the base who's actually my mom's boss and head of the whole base came over. Uh, We all, you know, myself and my mother and and the captain sat on the couch and he talked to us about it. They told us what happened, which was essentially uh, my dad was cooking. He had an alcohol induced seizure, passed out. And then uh, his his apartment caught on fire. Mm -hmm. So your grief sort of manifested differently than it did with other members of your family, right? Um, Can you tell me about that? You know, my mother was understandably, you know, totally, completely devastated. She 
had stuck with my dad for something like 25 years. They got divorced, like I said, just a few months before his passing. But she always said it wasn't because she didn't love him. It was just because he had issues with his alcoholism that weren't healthy for our family. And so she always thought, you know, one day he'll get better. We'll be a family again. Mm -hmm. So that just devastated her that that opportunity was was taken away and that it really hit her hard, um, really, really hard. And my brother was also a a sensitive kid. So he, he was very upset. Uh, but for me, it wasn't that I wasn't sad. I just, for whatever reason, life just moved on for me. I, I, I felt sad, but I, you know, I wasn't crying in public and I didn't want to take any days off school. I just wanted things to just keep moving. You know, I think that my reaction was so different from everybody else in my family that my mother and my brother actually told me several times that they thought that I just didn't love my father because I wasn't performatively reacting to this. Mm-hmm. Did you did you feel like the need to perform grief or, you know, in, in front of them just to get your family to sort of like back off? <laughs> I wish because that would have probably honestly been the smarter way to handle it. But I just, you know, at that point, I was just not even willing to do that. I just he did what I was doing before, what I was doing that, you know, just moving on through life. Mm-hmm. And at this point, you know, I, f- I feel like this is kind of silly to say, given the enormity of what happened. But, you know, I was preparing for prom and I was preparing. I had to figure mm-hmm. out how to get into college. You know, once my mom kind of fell apart when my dad died, I needed to figure out how am I going to how, how do you even apply to get into college? What tests do I need to take? Where do I want to go? What do you know? Mm-hmm. How am I going to pay for the application fee and it just became trying to figure out how how to drive my brother to football you know his football practice mm-hmm. I think that everybody around me was like just pretty freaked out that I was just like going to school and was fine so um the school actually forced me to go to a group grief counseling held by uh the guidance counselors and so it'd be a bunch of people who I didn't know or I did know and I wasn't friends with, so I didn't want to talk to them about anything. And it'd be like, you know, 10 people sitting around a table and they'd be talking about how they were just absolutely devastated that their great uncle, uh, you know, died. And I was just like, okay, you know, it's just like, you don't want to hear what I say. Like, I'm just going to make mm-hmm. everything go real dark real quick. Um, somebody called my mom and said that they thought that I was, you know, having all these weird problems processing grief. It it was just like nobody could actually believe that I was just doing it in my own way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's just, oh, God, sitting there listening to all these ridiculous stories about, you know, hearing people just talk about just things that didn't seem to matter whatsoever. And Mm -hmm. I was just like, uh, why, why am I here? And then once I did start to say something and 
the bell rang and they're like, oh, sorry, that was it. And I was like, wait, I literally just started to say something for the first time in weeks and now you're ready? Oh, my God. Say, Let's leave. <laughs> it's really compelling to me that, you know, you felt okay. You didn't want to go to therapy. Um, you felt like you were processing his death sort of quietly on your own. Um, but then everyone around you was like, uh, no, sorry, you're doing it wrong. Uh, you have to do it our way. Yes. That's the thing that I learned from my dad is that people expect you to appear sad and to perform being sad. And that like reassures them that you're okay. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't matter what you say. I've come to learn that people really think that you are crazy if you uh, do not have some sort of grief performance that matches what they think you should have. Is there is there anything else that you, you want to share, you know, maybe for folks who are, are dealing with a recent death? Just like if you are really upset, it's OK to be that way, too. I, I, I don't want anybody to feel shame or upset for, you know, if, if you do have that kind of a reaction, you know, I've had that kind of reaction over lots of things. All forms of grieving are valid. You might not even know how you're going to react in, until you're in the moment. So just allow yourself to do what you need, even if it feels, um, you know, unintuitive or something different than you thought. It's okay. Julie's grief was obviously very different than Carly's. You know, it's very different losses. Julie was grieving a parent and Carly was grieving a child. Carly was obviously more comfortable visibly grieving in front of people. I think Julie had more of that first trajectory that Professor Bonanno was talking about, the the resilient trajectory. I mean, she like, she was able to like go get ready for prom, take the SATs. Like it's, it's just, there's this idea that like as a 17 year old girl, when you're, you're, you know, your father dies like this, you would just totally break down. Yeah. But, um, and that was kind of one of the dangers of Kubler-Ross's model mm-hmm. is then, you know, like in Julie's story, you have people who think that if you don't move through those stages, um, then something must be wrong yeah, or then, something must be kind of blocking your grieving experience. Yeah. To like totally patho- pathologize her in that way that right. she would be, um, yeah, she's grieving incorrectly. Uh, but yeah, I just thought it was a really important story to share because there are different ways that people grieve. Absolutely. Um, and different ways that people grieve the same loss or the same person. Um, so I want to play one last story before we go, which I, I also think really challenges a lot of uh, modern day assumptions about grief. This is my conversation with Catherine St. Louis, who is a former New York Times health reporter who is now writing a book on familial estrangement. After my dad died, I didn't tell anyone. To talk about his death would be to talk about our estrangement. At the time of his death, I hadn't talked to him in maybe like two years. But essentially, our family unraveled when my father stopped talking to my brother when my brother was 20 and when I was 19. But eventually he disowned me too in 2016. Uh, And then we had no contact. So I took his death sort of differently than I think a lot of people do. Because like, if you look on Facebook, people 
write like memorials to their dad. Like he was an amazing grandfather. And then they post all these pictures with their dad and their kids. And my dad knew my son, but he refused to meet or see my brother's sons because he was already estranged from my brother. There was never any feel-good feelings around the whole grandparent experience. It was more like trying to tiptoe around the fact that he was such a jerk. Um, So how did you find out that he died? So I... I was kind of roped back into my whole family situation because my father got a diagnosis of stomach cancer. And I got the call from my mother in the summer of 2017. And it hit me like a gut punch. That was maybe harder than him actually dying because I was still very angry at him for having been disowned. I was really pissed. So my reaction to hearing that he had stomach cancer was, what do you mean? So this is all going to end before I ever have a chance to process my anger? My mother also said they've given him like weeks to live. There's barely any time to process. And my mother loved my father. She and my father were always in love, no matter how many kids he disowned. For her, she was sad, like as if he was a normal husband. Once you knew that he had late stage stomach cancer, did you feel like, oh, I need to get in touch with him? Or did you did you feel like you needed to try and rectify the estrangement in some way? I don't really believe in deathbed reconciliation. I think if you have issues you want to resolve with someone, that is like the work of the living. And when you add the stress of dying, it it doesn't make it easier to have all those conversations you've been struggling to have for decades. But in my case, honestly, there was never going to be any resolution. He would have had to want to grow or change. And I had made peace with the fact that that was never going to happen. I did end up seeing him a couple times in the hospital when he was dying. But I essentially went to help support siblings who really wanted to see him again. I am glad I went. But there was never going to be a deathbed I'm so sorry for all that I did. My dad couldn't say sorry about anything, so he wasn't going to apologize for one of the biggest mistakes he's made in his life. So how did you get the actual news that he had died? Did you get a phone call from your mom? My mom called me from the hospital room, and she was very upset, and I I was not crying. I was happy that he did not have to suffer any longer. But I was also happy that our story was done. I was somewhere near Union Square when I got the call, and I sort of sat down on the steps, and I helped my mother through that moment and tried to be kind. I know it will sound so strange to people that... It wasn't making me sad or it wasn't 
what do you mean you didn't start wailing in the middle of Union Square? But like our relationship was already over. Whatever grieving I had already done, I, I did when I realized we were never going to work. So it's been about seven months since he passed away, right? If he, he died in August. So have your feelings like evolved or changed since you first got that phone call? Like, have you gotten progressively like more okay with the absence of grief? Or were you immediately okay with it? I was definitely not okay with the absence of grief. I was sort of worried about myself and thinking like, oh, any day now the shoe's going to drop and I'll be a complete wreck. Sure, it seems like I'm okay, but like any human, I wonder whether or not they're like these boxes like I'm keeping in my heart. And then one day, three years from now, when I go to a specific place where it really reminds me of my dad, I'll just like break down. I don't know, maybe, but I'm pretty comfortable with who I am. And I'm pretty comfortable with the fact that I have long been on a journey that does not mirror other family members or look like other families. And that if the shoe drops, fine, I'll call my therapist more, you know, writing this book about family estrangement and talking to many estranged relatives and plenty of them uh, sort of like suck in their oxygen before they say things like, I was really relieved once he died. I don't really miss him. I don't think I'm the only one who is feeling that way. Uh, and I don't pretend to have the answers. But I also think estrangement is weird. And then when you mix in grieving or non-grieving, it gets really weird. I love that she shared that, that she was concerned that she was grieving incorrectly and that she was nervous that down the line she was going to have some sort of breakdown. Right. Um, which, again, goes back to this idea of, like, you know, the this this one necessary, like, model of you have to go through these different stages. You have to experience depression or whatever in order right. to... Right, and the belief that there's a right or wrong way to grieve. Everyone grieves differently and uh, processes a loss differently and that's okay. So that is our show for today. Thank you to Josh Douglas and Barry Douglas for coming on the show. Thank you also to Carly, Julie, and Catherine for sharing their stories. I'll link to Catherine St. Louis's New York Times piece about estrangement on our website, grouppodcast.com. I'll also link to Professor George Bonanno's book, The Other Side of Sadness. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you download your podcast to make sure that you have the next part of the episode when it comes out. Um, we have a really beautiful interview with author John Evans about prolonged grief. And we'll share some advice on how to feel better when you're grieving or how to support a friend when they are grieving. And we would really, really appreciate it if you, if you could rate and review the show. You know, it doesn't take a lot of time and it really, really helps us out. If you have a question or an idea for a future show, you can call the group voicemail, 707-510-0270. Um, you can also email me directly, Rebecca at grouppodcast.com. Thank you also to Mary Langto, Faith Rusk, and Salman Khan for their continued help and support of group. Thank you to Sarah Barrett for her help as well. If you're interested in Catherine's work as a therapist, you can visit her website, katherinedrury.com. 
C-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E-D-R-U-R-Y.com. Music in this episode is by The Losers. Take care and be kind to yourself. Everything is going to be okay. And that's another thing. Don't be afraid to let yourself cry if you can. It's corny, but tears really are the holiest of water. But you'll also want to hydrate. Uh, Sally, it's been wonderful to spend this time with you, and please forgive us for taking up so much of it. It's fine, Robert. I'll tell you something. When my dad died, I found that a very small dose of Lexapro mixed in with some ice cream really helped me jumpstart my way out of my grief.